from the Alaska Airlines Studio. Presented by 2020lifestyles.com. This is The Blitz. The first look at the top stories in Seattle sports. They don't make them like good. We're not like everybody else. The rundown on everything Seattle sports on your way to work. Swing and a fly ball. Deep right center field. He did it again. And the stories everyone is talking about. This is the Blitz at Six. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the Blitz at Six. Lydia Cruz alongside with you Wednesday, June 17th. Thanks for hanging out this morning. Yesterday, the NBA sent a hundred plus page document to its players detailing nearly every element of what life will be like inside the bubble, inside the campus like environment in Orlando, Florida. How will the health and safety protocols be laid out? How will they handle a positive coronavirus test? We've seen athletes from a lot of major sports testing positive in recent days. So inevitably, one of those positive tests likely to happen. And how will the league go about handling it? How many people will be living inside the bubble? And what will life be like for the players? We got an idea of that yesterday. Also yesterday, a lot of thoughts on the state of baseball and what the next best move is for Major League Baseball and the players. We'll discuss and hear from the experts all ahead in this hour right now. Let's get to your headlines. As I mentioned, that 100-plus page document, just some light reading, right, for a Tuesday, sent to players, NBA players yesterday, and the league detailing nearly every element of the campus environment, what it'll be like in that Orlando bubble when the season resumes next month, like calling it the Orlando campus, Uh, from health and safety protocols to social distancing guidelines, as well as activities and amenities that will be available to players. The NBA also laid out six phases of participation that players, coaches, and staff will go through between now and October 13th. That is the last possible day that the NBA Finals could be played. So those phases are as such. Phase one, it goes from now until Monday, and that's just the deadline for players to report to their home cities. So if they were out of town, if they were overseas, uh, they've got to get back to their home cities. It does not apply to the Toronto Raptors. They're an exception. They are going to end up convening at Florida Gulf Coast University in Naples, Florida. Phase two begins June 23rd, and this is when the testing really starts for players. Players will begin to be tested every other day, as well as the two days prior to their departure for Florida. The first test will be both a test for COVID-19 and the fun nasal swab that we've all had and the oral swab, plus an antibody test test done via a blood draw. The COVID-19 test will be repeated every other day for players. The antibody test will be repeated only if a player tests positive. Phase three starts on July 1st, extends to July 11th, and that's when players actually can begin individual workouts at team facilities. Phase four is split into two parts. It starts July 7th through 11th, which includes the team's travel to Walt Disney World, as well as a period of time afterwards when they'll actually have to be quarantined in their hotel rooms. Once teams arrive in Orlando, players and staff will be isolated in their rooms. They have to have two negative PCR tests at least 24 hours apart. So that means anywhere from 36 to 48 hours in their hotel rooms in quarantine when they arrive. After two negative tests, they will no longer have to quarantine. The second part of phase four, July 9th through the 21st, this includes practice times for teams once players and staff complete their quarantine period. 
During Phase 5, uh, teams will play three scrimmages against other teams in the same hotel because there's going to be three different hotels players are staying in. And then Phase 6 covers the time teams will be playing in seating and playoff games. We know that to be late July. Uh, once teams are eliminated, players will be required to pass a COVID-19 test within four, 24 hours of their scheduled departure. So even on the way out of the bubble, they will have to pass a test. No one will be stopped from leaving the NBA campus, but to minimize potential risk and exposure to the virus, the expectation is players and staff will not leave campus except in, quote, extenuating circumstances. Those include the need uh, for medical care off campus, the birth of a child, a documented severe illness or death in the family, or a previously scheduled family wedding. So big question, how will the league go about handling a positive coronavirus test? Because this was something that they were sort of mum on, and a lot of people have been mum on up until this point in both professional sports as well as the collegiate level. Once someone tests positive, according to the NBA, the protocol is uh, a several-step process. They'll be placed in isolation housing. It's separate. It's different from the hotel room that they'll be living in. And, of course, no individuals who have not tested positive will be in that same area. They'll be administered a second test as soon as possible to make sure that they didn't just get a false positive. If that second test comes back positive, though, the person has to remain in isolation housing. If the second test comes back negative, they have a third test, and that'll be administered between 24, 48 hours after the first one. If that test also come back, comes back negative, the person will be allowed to re-enter the NBA campus. If it comes back positive, it has to remain in isolation. Once someone tests negative twice in a span of more than 24 hours, they'll be allowed to leave isolation. But uh, players will not be forced to quarantine after that. They will have to wait for a two-week period uh, to pass before undergoing a cardiac screening. Why? Well, that's in accordance with the CDC's cardiac screening guidelines. The league's also going to utilize and implement video technology. We had heard some rumors about this, but that's going to help with contact tracing for any individual who ends up testing positive. So the NBA will be able to designate a a close contact, anyone who is within six feet of the positive test person for at least 15 minutes or anyone who might have been coughed on, sneezed on, and those people will then end up being tested. How many people will ultimately be allowed to travel and be inside this bubble? Well, each team will be allowed to have a travel partner of 37 people inside the NBA campus, Uh, 35 made up of their players and support staff members. They get one public relations official and a, quote, content creator because the inevitable 30 for 30 documenting this this unprecedented time is going to be amazing, but uh, someone who is going to help create content for the team. Teams will be allowed to share or be able to share medical staff, PR staff, equipment, attendants, and mental health professionals. That was something that the NBA really emphasized too, encouraging the team to bring a mental health professional. Uh, it can be uh, with the team, with their travel party, but that this is so unique for players and that isolation bit too, we know can be hard on people. A lot of us have experienced it in some way, shape, or form during COVID-19 and with self-quarantine. And mental health professionals, really important for those players as of now. What will life actually be like for players inside the bubble? Teams will stay at three properties at Disney World, as I mentioned. They'll have access to a players-only lounge that includes TVs, arcades, uh, arcade gaming, access to uh, the NBA 2K video game, of course, and ping pong. They've also got a 24-hour VIP concierge. 
daily entertainment, potential movie screenings. Uh, each team will have a dedicated Disney culinary team to create individualized team menus and support team dietary needs. There's also the option for team-sponsored outings, with, whether that's uh, privatized restaurants, boating, bowling, but really trying to keep players still as confined as possible or uh, away from the general public as possible. Players will also have an option. This is interesting to wear a proximity alarm that will notify them if they spend more than five seconds within six feet of another person on campus who is wearing an alarm. It's an option and just optional for players and possibly referees. It will be mandatory for all team and league staff members. Players also will be allowed to wear a smart ring that could help with early detection of COVID-19. How? Well, they will track temperature, respiratory, and heart rate, among other measurements. Yeah, pretty incredible. Now, what if players want to opt out of that? Because that is, again, 100 pages worth of health and safety guidelines, and some players might feel trepidation about that. They have until June 24th to inform their respective teams whether they plan to participate in the return to play plan. Uh, the league and the union have agreed that any player chooses not to play in the restarted season. They will have their compensation reduced by one ninety second, just about for each game missed up to a cap of 14 games. And although players who choose not to go to Orlando will be docked pay, the memo also explains that exceptions will be made for both protected and excused players. Protected players are those who could be at higher risk for severe illness from COVID-19, and they are, will be approved by a medical staff and a medical board uh, if they want that designation. Players who receive that designation from their teams can opt out and not lose any salary. But 100 pages of uh, guidelines to consider, and June 24th going to be the deadline. So just one week from now, they have to decide if they are going to opt in or opt out. Still, a lot of positives to take away from this and the fact that basketball is closer to returning. One of the biggest impediments seemed to be the fact that they had no testing protocol in place, and now it's clear that they have a, a pretty detailed one. So that's good news for all of us hoping to see basketball back soon. Up next on The Blitz, not so good news. What's happened in baseball this week? Although someone who usually might be a little pessimistic, Jeff Passan, actually saying Rob Memfred's comments in totality should give us hope for baseball this season. I'll explain next right here on 710 ESPN Seattle. You're listening to The Blitz from the Alaska Airlines studio. Welcome back to The Blitz at 6. Lydia Cruz alongside with you hanging out this morning for being here. Wednesday, June 17th. We got some news on the NBA front and the return to play. A hundred pages worth of health and safety protocols detailing also the campus-like environment. But a positive step players have until June 24th to respond to that. Not so positive in the world of baseball. But we do have at least some optimism from Jeff Passan. We'll get to in just a moment. But in an interview with the Los Angeles Times yesterday, the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, Dr. Anthony Fauci, warned against the potential danger of allowing the Major League Baseball season to creep uh, deep into the fall. He said, quote, if the question is time, I would try to keep it in the core summer months and end it not with the way we play the World Series until the end of October when it's cold. He told the Times, I would avoid that. When to end a potential season has been one of the points of contention between Major League Baseball and the Players Union. The league 
has said they want the regular season and been pretty consistent, saying they want it to end on September 27th. Uh, the union's most recent proposal of 89 games would have had the regular season end in mid-October and draw it out a little bit longer. Dr. Fauci is saying that baseball, if baseball is to be played, it should be done mostly in the summer. He said, quote, this virus is one that keeps fooling us under most circumstances, but we don't know for sure here. Viruses do better when the weather starts to get colder and people start spending more time in Side as opposed to outside. The community has a greater chance of getting infected. The likelihood is that if you stick to the core summer months, you're better off, even though there's no guarantee. If you look at the kinds of things that could happen, there's no guarantee of anything. You would want to do it at a time when there isn't the overlap between influenza and the possibility of a fall second wave. The potential for a season of any length right now is currently un- unclear and a little bit in jeopardy uh, as the commissioner's office is refusing to set the schedule that the players asked for unless the union waives its right to file a grievance against the league, both parties believing that the other is negotiating in bad faith. We heard from Jeff Passan yesterday on though why uh, what the next move is for both the owners and the MLBPA. I think they're in the process of that right now. And that is the important step forward here because it became abundantly clear yesterday that the owners want absolutely no business with a grievance for imposing a shorter season. Major League Baseball understands that even if it does delay, 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 and then impose a 48, 50, 54 game season, whatever it is in that range, that the Players Association is going to file a grievance that could have upward of a billion dollars worth of damages. And that is simply something that owners do not want hanging over their heads. Everybody at this point recognizes that playing more baseball is the optimal outcome here. And it's just a matter of figuring out how many games they're actually going to play. Passing those saying that the ball really in the owner's court as of now to bring baseball back. If there is some flexibility on the back end, if there are some double headers that are put into play, they can play somewhere between 70 and 75 games. And at this point, I think owners have to recognize that they are in a position where they need to be the ones who are bringing baseball back because the players are just sitting here saying, you tell us when, you tell us where, we'll be there. And that is an extraordinarily simple and powerful message. Tim Kirkchin also on the fact that owners may have believed the PA was weaker than it is. The owners who clobbered the players in the last CBA basically got it in their minds that we can get anything we want from these players. So we are going to challenge them, divide the union, maybe break the union. And what's turned out is the union has really come together on this. The players are unified as much as they've been in many, many years. And I don't agree with Rob Manfred. I don't think 100% of our owners really want to play the game. I think the players want to play. Both sides are going to have to acquiesce here. But I think the owners misread the union here, and they're now understanding the union is really solid. Tom Verducci of MLB Network also on the fact that players are looking ahead at the whole CBA and the owners might be focusing on one problem. I think the owners have looked at this issue as a one-off problem. How do we get the sport back on the field out of a pandemic? We've never been in this situation before. It's not easy to solve. Players are looking at this as a multi-year problem. In other words, the CBA is up next year, and they haven't been happy that their wages have not been going up as revenues have gone up. 
So they've seen this as an opportunity to talk about the macroeconomics of the game. So they're kind of speaking different languages here, and that's why they've been so far apart. Evan Drellich, two of the Athletic MLB, chiming in yesterday, I believe on Spain & Co., talking about the fact that Manfred changed his tune significantly within five days, saying that he was 100% certain they would have baseball, and then on that Sports Center special on Monday, saying uh, flipping and saying that he's not confident there will be baseball in 2020. What does that suggest? Pretty clearly, by Manfred's flip-flop here, it's making clear that there's enough ownership pushback against the union's current stance, that they don't want to take those different risks. They don't want to play full prorated and also have this potential of the grievance coming back over the top. But even before all this in the last couple of weeks, there were rumblings that some owners might just not want to play, period. And every owner is in a different financial position. The big market teams, in a way, are hurt the most here because even though they have the best TV deals, they also rely the most on the gate. What's hard to get around is... If you know the industry is better off with revenues, with games being played, to see owners stand in the way of it, no matter what, is hard to swallow and a little bit of an intellectual disconnect. But we're all just circling around it at this point. Okay, so that might seem a little bit pessimistic, but Jeff Passan did have a positive thought saying, why Manfred's statements uh, le- left him if you view them in totality in a good in a good place? I believe this leaves baseball in a better place than it was going into yesterday. And I think it's because of Rob Manfred's words in totality. Let's look at all of the different things he said. Number one, he acknowledged that Major League Baseball is ready to pay players their full prorated salary. They have not gone there in terms of their offers at this point. I think even more than that, he went and said three different times that the owners want players back on the field. If that is true, Major League Baseball is in a position to make it happen. Coming up next on the Blitz, the Seahawks schedule breakdown in the NFC West. We know there's some formidable teams, but that was a topic of discussion yesterday on Bob, Dave and more. It's next on the Blitz right here on 710 ESPN Seattle. From the Alaska Airlines studio, this is the Blitz. Welcome back to the Blitz at 6. Lydia Cruz alongside with you. The full NFL schedule was released a little while ago. And while there's still a lot of unknowns, things up in the air in terms of when players will be allowed in team facilities, how training camp will work, and if there'll be any delay to the start of the regular season. But it was still our first chance to look at how things will play out for the Seahawks in terms of opponents. What is the toughest stretch for the Seahawks this season. Bob David Moore discussing that yesterday. This might be the toughest four-game stretch they have, game seven through ten, because you have mm-hmm. San Francisco, you're playing them in Seattle, then you go on the road for Buffalo, then you you have to play at L.A. I mean, and the Rams have won four of the last five games against the Seahawks. Always a tough matchup, and we know how difficult it is. Everybody talks about, boy, it's a division matchup, but it's truly the case with the Rams. And, and the one game that the Rams did lose... Yeah, Legatron missed a field goal there at the end last year, and the Seahawks escaped 30-29 to in one of those. I think it was a Monday night game. And then the following week, to end the four-game stretch, they're playing Arizona. 
which Arizona on a Thursday night, you're thinking, well, okay, the Seahawks have a great primetime record, and Pete Carroll's 8-1 and one on Thursday night football, so they should handle business there with the Cardinals, thinking about the Cardinals being 5-10-1 last year. But adding DeAndre Hopkins, and Arizona's won four of the last five meetings in Seattle against the Seahawks. So it's uh, going to be interesting to see how that all shakes out once it gets here. Yeah, and, and Bump, I've been saying this about the Rams. Let's take a look at them first, then we'll look at the car. I'm much more fearful of the Cardinals. The Rams... They've, they brought in Leonard Floyd, Sean Robinson. You look at some of the losses. Gurley's out. Brandon Cooks is out. Dante Fowler is out. Greg Zerline's gone. Clay Matthews is gone. I just don't buy the Rams. I think they're going to be in last place in the division this year if everybody's healthy. Now, injuries change all of that, obviously. If Russell Wilson goes down, then we're talking about something different. But it, it, just based on who they are, the Rams, yeah, they always provide a tough test for the Seahawks regardless of how good they are I just don't think they're the Rams of two years ago I I think this is a team that's going to be looking up at the Seahawks the 49ers and the Cardinals yeah no I'm with you there I I feel like this team is still going to be a good team I think that they are going to have strength in what the Hawks kind of have their weakness in not a weakness but they were soft on the back and they gave up a lot of um, big yardage to receivers. You still got a Cooper Cup, who I feel like is a top five receiver in the NFL. Um, you still have a Robert, Robert Woods who can take take a top off a of defense. But I look at that that backfield. I mean, is Cam Akers going to be the guy to, to step up? You know, they have Daryl Henderson there, but he hasn't been super productive. And say what you want about this Rams team, a lot of their offense is based off of that run game, being able to stretch the defense um, east and west. Now, are their running backs going to be able to do that? Are they going to be able to give the same illusions that they were used to giving the past couple of years with the healthy, healthy girly? So um, I think the Hawks can handle this football team. But whenever they travel down to Los Angeles in the Coliseum, um, you know, it makes me a little nervous. But on paper, I think that the Hawks should handle this team. And I'm with you as far as the Rams finishing last in the division. Yeah, well, we'll see, though. I mean, last year, their only road loss was was in L.A., and, and the Rams didn't really impress me last year, even though they went 9-7. and seven. The thing is, Bob, is it, and I'm with you on the Rams, and I think they might finish in last, but it just looks like such a tough division with Arizona improving that I, it wouldn't surprise me if the Rams were in last place, but if they were 8-8 eight and eight or something like that, because it's not like they're terrible all of a sudden no i i totally agree with you there i don't i don't think when i say they're going to be in last place i don't think this is a five or four win team and they're just you know the bottom falls out i think this is the toughest division in football again because i think it was last year but i think the improvement of the cardinals and that's the next team on the schedule that we're looking at a thursday night game so they got a quick turnaround from the rams on a sunday to a thursday night game so they got a short week and they've got it's a thursday night game you look at what the Cardinals have brought in. Now, we, we talked about what they lost. David Johnson, who really didn't do much for him. Uh, they, they lost Farrell Cooper. They lost Charles Clay. Uh, you know, And then you look at what they brought in. DeAndre Hopkins, if he's not the best receiver in the league, he's in the conversation. Uh, Jordan Phillips, uh, Devondre Campbell, Isaiah Simmons out of the draft. I mean, they, and then you give Kyler Murray with a year under his belt. He was, you know, looked pretty good last year. This is a scary team to me. They, I worry more about the Cardinals than I do the Rams, and I understand division games are always tough regardless, but this is this is more worrisome, this team, than the Rams are for me. Yeah, I look at this team, and I see a Kyler Murray who's going to be better. I see a, a Kenyon Drake who came over and stole a spot in David Johnson. I see a, 
a duo in Hopkins and Larry Fitzgerald that's perfect. You got the guy who goes deep. Um, you got the, the veteran in the slot. And don't sleep on Christian Kirk, man. Christian Kirk is a good receiver as well. So I look at the skill positions, and I'm like, all right, offensively this team – is going to have the potential to put up a lot of points. They got it. They should have a good run game. They should have a good pass game. And not to mention their coach is evolving as well. He tried to come out and just throw the football and try to do um, some college football type style. And he realized, okay, I need a running back that fits what I like to do. And I think he found that in Drake. Um, as far as defense goes, you mentioned Isaiah Simmons, who's probably the fastest linebacker out there. He's great in space. So this team got better. And, you know, Arizona, when, when Bruce Aarons was there, they, they typically played the Hawks uh, pretty tough. And, you know, I think they will this year as well. If the Hawks are going to lose a game um, that you expect them not to, it's probably this one because of that quick turnaround. Four days and they have to lace them up and play again. Tough stretch there. That was the topic of discussion on Bob, Dave, and more yesterday. Michael Bumpus there in the mix with them as well. And remember, you can download their podcast at 710sports.com. Also yesterday on with Tom, Jake, and Stacy, ESPN writer David Schoenfeld dropping by to discuss where baseball's at at this moment. And right now we talk to David Schoenfeld, senior writer for ESPN.com. Love having David on. David, how are you? <laughs> I'm good. How's everyone out there? Well, we're okay. Like, we're so curious to see what's going to happen with this Mariner team. But if we don't have a season, David, we're going to have to wait till next year and maybe even the year after that if things go really poorly. Um, I'll just ask you first. Are, are you still holding out hope, despite everything that's been said, that we're still going to get some kind of season? Yeah, I... I guess I, that's a very reluctant, uh, hopeful feeling, but uh, I don't know. I guess in the end, I still find it hard to believe we'll have no season, but um, you know, all it takes is eight owners to say, we don't want to play and there's nothing the commissioner can do. And there's really nothing the players can do because you need 23 owners to approve whatever plan they want to come up with. So if eight say no, um, we might not have have a season, and there's reports out there that there might be eight owners that just want to fold up their tent and go home. So that being said, I think we'll see baseball. At least, uh, at least I hope so. <laughs> yeah, I, I still feel like we will too. You know, this issue of baseball losing fans, and you know, the game alienating the even its diehards. Do you think that the owners, because there's the bottom line and the money that they're after, and then there's the health of the game. Those are two, I guess they seem like they're separate things. Do you think that the owners are in touch with how much trouble their game could truly be in if they screw this up? You know, that's, that's really, I think, the ultimate big picture question. Aside from this, specific negotiation and there's no good answer for everyone involved and that's not even factoring in you know the health concerns or the possible return there a spike in you know in the pandemic that being said no i don't think the owners in recent years recent decades have done a good job of thinking of the sport itself and i mean not just major league baseball and how much money they make but the sport from you know t-ball all the way on up. You know, a good example is look what the NBA does. They support the WNBA. The WNBA doesn't make a lot of money, but the NBA owners view this. It's good for the sport. It brings women into the sport. Women are going to watch our sport. Baseball doesn't have that 
they they give voice saying we want more kids playing and all that, but they don't really put the money, you know, behind their words. And, you know, so, yeah, there's the big picture look of what's the health of baseball going to be in 10 years or 20 years. And that's where I think the owners are, are short-sighted. More on baseball's potential return and Jeff Passan on why he still believes that Manfred's comments earlier this week leave baseball in a good position. Also, the most recent episode of the Flying Coach podcast was released yesterday and Pete Carroll, uh, Steve Kerr joined by Doc Rivers to talk about the restart of the NBA and also Pete Carroll on how keeping players engaged right now with these virtual meetings is so important. It's next in the hot list right here on 710 ESPN Seattle. You know, I'm going to do it all right now. You're listening to The Blitz from the Alaska Airlines Studio. It's time for The Hot List. Holy mackerel. The headlines for the day in sports every morning at 645. Heck yes. What are we missing here? A full breakdown of the top stories of today on your morning drive. Let's go. Got to hear from Pete Carroll on the most recent episode of the Flying Coach podcast that's put on by The Ringer, and it's in a, a limited edition series, including Pete Carroll, Steve Kerr, and some of the incredible guests that they have known throughout their careers that they have brought on, and recently joined by Doc Rivers, uh, head coach of the Clippers, in their most recent recent episode came out yesterday. First of all, talking about the return of the NBA positive move yesterday a hundred page document sent by the league to players and to staff detailing all of the health and safety protocols that would go into the return in late july and doc rivers uh saying and admitting that they don't really know what to do with the downtime in the bubble in the campus-like environment and that's one thing that they're focused on right now what, what do you do in orlando when you're on this campus how do you i'm i'm, I'm Send not, the magic you know. kingdom yeah, you know, it's interesting. Uh, Pete, you're right, though. I don't think you can go to Magic Kingdom. Which is not open. <laughs> you know, know. It, it'll be open, but I don't know if we'll be allowed to go. I don't I'm think so. I'm assuming a golf course, because they have so many at Disney, will be open. But 90% of the league doesn't golf. So, um, and, and Steve, you're right. Like, it's so important. The mental break, I, I think there's yes. two things. Number one. It's not just the players need a middle break. Usually when I give the, the team a day off, I need a break too. No like that's, the un, that's the untold story. Like when we <laughs> give them a day off, they think it's for them. Half the time it's for us. Doc River saying it's kind of like a cruise ship. They're just trying to organize activities for the players while in this bubble environment. And the, the thing is, it'll be easy to start playing, he said. But the key will be, can they finish this season Pete Carroll, for his part, saying that he won't be surprised if a couple of NBA players, especially some of the big-name players, don't want to risk playing in the pandemic and playing in this time and this environment, and he could see some of them staying home. Pete also taking back to his own situation and how important it is to keep players engaged and involved and interested in times like these where they're doing everything online. Everything is virtual right now. Doc, we're coming up with, uh, we're finishing, I think it's week eight right now in the virtual offseason for the NFL, you know, and and, uh, so we've been going through, I mean, day in and day out coming up. We're just taxing ourselves in every way we can to be as creative as possible to maintain uh, interaction, relationship, proactivity, uh, uh, in, entertainment, fun and games. We've told a 
got a ton of stories about personal personal issues and gone into such depth there. It takes everything you can think of. I, I think you got everything you can you've ever been resourceful for. You got to come up with everything, and you need all the help and having you know an assistant that helps you all that stuff. I know I do. Uh, we're just trying every way we can, and that's I think that's that's going to be part of who wins. It's it's going to who, who did the best, and like Steve was saying, relating to his team, keeping your team on track, keeping them together, and and keeping them kind of balanced as they handle all of the challenges of this new stuff. You know. Not just uh, health and safety protocols, but also uh, much-needed change happening around the country and protests in the tragic protests in the wake of the tragic death of George Floyd and others uh, at the hands of police and the discussion, the topic of police brutality and racial injustice, a long overdue conversation now coming up in this country. And Pete Carroll mentioning on the Flying Coach podcast that he's impressed players can play at a high level and invest in so many outside interests. Uh, and concerns that things are important to them. That, that is a big, that's a big difference in our world right now, isn't it? That the players have such a, like you're talking about the platform that they have. They, they've, and think about it, Doc, when, when you were playing back in the day, like your world was so consumed with being the ball player. These guys are being the ball player, but they're also being this, like this other image that they have. How have they ever figured out how to expand all of that and still be great at their sport? You know, and, and oh, when, when their time is so divided and their and their attention and focus and and concerns are so divided, because the game is still played at such an extraordinary level of expertise and all. I bet back in the day we would never. How could you have that much room for that kind of mentality and still be a great player? But thank God they're they're there now and they're doing it. And it, it's something we have to learn how to balance with with our players at all times. Pete Carroll also discussing the change happening right here in Seattle. And the people are really rising up in a great way, in a very, very diverse manner. But the center of, of this thing is all happening right down in there, you know, and, and right in town, right around the East Precinct. And, and uh, there's a lot of information coming out in the media that shows a lot of the craziness that, that happened like the first night or so. This is really something special now. People are coming for the right reason. They continue to return and come back to show their support and show the intensity of their care. Um, and, and I'm really hoping that uh, Chief Carmen Best and, and uh, Mayor Jenny Durkin can really make the statements right now. This is, we're right at the cusp of it happening. And so these statements are en- enormous. And, uh, you know, so I'm, I'm really I'm, I'm thrilled to be part of this. It's, it's our players, our community. This this area is rising up. You guys would, would you know, you talk about putting a team back here. That they, they would be well represented here. It's a fantastic uh, mentality around here. Texas A&M quarterback Helen Mond, uh, who's advocated for the removal of a statue of former Texas A&M President Lawrence Sullivan Ross, also adding to that campaign on Tuesday, saying, quote, I need to see action on Twitter. The statue known as Sully was built in 1919 in honor of Ross, who served as the Aggies president from 1891 to 1898 and is credited with saving the university amid financial struggles and boosting its enrollment. But uh, Ross's past has come into focus in recent years as monuments of figures with ties to the Confederacy or racist policies have uh, been scrutinized. Uh, before arriving at AM, Ross was a brigadier general in the Confederate Army and, uh, and Mond now campaigning for this. There is a petition online. 24,000 people have signed a petition for the statue's removal. About 25,000 have signed one to keep it at this point. But several current players and former players tweeting out their support for Mond as well. And he just advocating the values of Texas A&M University do not align with racism, violence, slavery, and segregation. Uh, Jimbo Fisher's most prominent saying will always stick with me. He said, your actions speak so loud, I can't hear what you're saying. 
and he wants to see action. Uh, one area where they did see action would be Clemson University, and thanks to the advocacy of some big name former na- former players, including DeAndre Hopkins and Deshaun Watson, uh, they ended up changing the name of their honors college. And Jim Clements, Clemson president, yesterday commenting on why it was the right time to make that change. There are some who say we didn't move fast enough. And all these things, there have been years of discussion. This was absolutely the right time for us uh, and the right time to do it. Nationally, we are a leader in that. Uh, and I think other universities are going to have to follow our lead and have those similar, very tough and uncomfortable discussions on who do you want to be in 20. <laughs> Um, that I tell uh, you know my leadership team is we're preparing for 2030, 2040, 2050. Who do we want to be? What do we want to look like? How can we always get better? And this again was a statement of our values. The university created a value statement uh, a couple of years ago that's very, very powerful. And we think these decisions match our values very well. Oklahoma State coach Mike Gundy apologized Tuesday uh, for the pain and discomfort he caused his players and others due to a T-shirt he was photographed wearing, vowed positive changes for his football program. The apology came one day after star running back Chuba Hubbard also went on social media and called out Gundy for wearing a T-shirt from OAN. That stands for One America News. One America News, uh, a far-right news network that's often cited by President Trump and the network has recently criticized the Black Lives Matter movement. So Chuba Hubbard uh, taking to Twitter to, uh, you know, voice his concern over this. And the two ended up having a meeting and uh, Gundy ended up apologizing. Apology actually came one day uh, or actually came the same day. The photo uh, where they were pictured uh, in a photo together, Gundy uh, and Hubbard appeared in a video message together and it drew some widespread criticism. Mike Gundy, here is a clip of that of that video. Once I learned how that network felt about Black Lives Matter, I was disgusted and knew it was completely unacceptable to me. I want to apologize to all members of our team, former players and their families for the pain and discomfort that has been caused over the last two days. But a lot of people saying the shirt uh, itself, not the issue, and uh, it's bigger than that, including Dan Wolk in USA Today. I'm glad Mike Gundy owned the fact that wearing the shirt was stupid and that it represented things that were hurtful to his players, but that's not really the issue here. As you saw the former and current players and their chatter on social media, this is about how... Black players at Oklahoma State uh, were treated, what their experiences were, how they were talked to, and whether or not they felt like the environment at Oklahoma State was welcoming and equal. And that's the issue that needs to be addressed. Uh, And I think Mike Gundy's got to go beyond just the T-shirt, and we need to see what's changing in the program and whether the school is going to look into some of this stuff and what that might lead to. Baseball in dire straits as of now, at least uh, they've reached an impasse between owners, between the Players Association. We haven't heard from many players on this, but we got to hear from them, a few of them, yesterday. Uh, Trevor Plouffe, former MLB player, played nine seasons in the league. He said the owners can take the financial hit and... uh, 
it's because of that mistrust of how the revenue is reported. But they have ancillary uh, income around teams. These guys have a lot of ancillary um, revenue generated through their clubs. We all know that they are exempt from antitrust laws, which makes owning a baseball team one of the most coveted positions in the sports world. They don't want to give that up. I don't believe that one season of missed revenue from ticket sales or concessions is going to ruin any of these guys' financials. We've seen franchise value skyrocket. People this smart, this rich, they know how to make that work for them. They know how to make that money work for them. So I think that, you know, maybe they take a small hit this year. If they did end up paying full period salaries at an 80-game season, but I don't think that's something that they couldn't make up in one, two, three years. And I think that tells something about the state of the game and how much money there is to be made in baseball. Trevor also saying that he expects the owners to drag their feet, but uh, that there might be a 60-game season still. Jason Kipnis also joining ESPN Radio yesterday as well, Cubs second baseman and outfielder, and saying despite the comments made by Rob Manfred and how they were disheartening uh, earlier this week, he still puts it at an 85% chance that they play the season this year. Also, Jeff Passan uh, ESPN MLB insider pretty optimistic on the totality of Manfred's statements. I believe this leaves baseball in a better place than it was going into yesterday. And I think it's because of Rob Manfred's words in totality. Let's look at all of the different things he said. Number one, he acknowledged that Major League Baseball is ready to pay players their full prorated salary. They have not gone there in terms of their offers at this point. I think even more than that, he went and said three different times that the owners want players back on the field. If that is true, Major League Baseball is in a position to make it happen. That's good news for uh, baseball fans, at least still hoping, holding out hope for a season this year. That's a wrap for the Hot List and the entire Blitz at Six Hour. Danny and Glock coming your way next right here on 710 ESPN Seattle.